This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell. Hello, welcome to another edition of the Money and Markets podcast. I'm Danny Hewson. This week, Dan Coates with, with us, as always, to look at the fluctuations on the FTSE this week, a mixed bag of results from ITV, Domino's and Foxton's, plus what impact that massive US stimulus is having on markets. I'll be looking at calls for personal finance to be given more prominence on schools' curriculums, And what do you do with your cash ISA? Research carried out for AJ Bell has found you might be missing a trick and losing money if you're not switching. We're also going to hear from the Artemis investment manager, Rosanna Bocceri, and from William DeGale, who runs the Blue Box Technology Fund. They're going to be talking about issues around the recent sell-off in tech stocks and why the sector still has some appeal. So let's start down with something that's got my kids talking. Uh, Joe Biden sending out a check for $1,400 US dollars to Americans, earning up to $75,000 a year. Now, that's a lot of checks. Apparently, these ones aren't going to have his signature on, unlike the ones that Donald Trump sent out. Um, but they're going to children too. And that's something that's got my kids interested. They got quite cross that Rishi Sunak hadn't done something similar here But there is a potential downside to this, and that is affecting markets, right? Yeah, I mean, I I saw this survey um, from Deutsche Bank, which uh, talked to people who use uh, online broker platforms and said that found that between the 25 and 35 year olds um, who, who invest in the market already, half of them plan to use stimulus payments on stocks. And actually, 40% of people who are aged 18 to 24 are going to do the same. So, um, you know, this is quite interesting. I often wondered if the whole point of some of these checks is you could potentially use it to perhaps pay down some of your debts. Um, you know, you, you might want to use it to pay your bills and stuff. But but you know, there is an incredible interest here in people just taking this money and sticking it in the stock market. So it, it's good for uh, stocks because they might go up and that would benefit other investors. But um, I wonder whether we'll get another repeat of the GameStop style um, madness where people just rush into certain parts of the market um, and we see wild swings and then they come crashing back down again. So um, I don't know, crazy times ahead potentially, I think, here. Well, it would give us something to talk about, I guess. And $1.9 trillion, that's a huge amount. And there will be concern that it could lead to some kind of overheating. Yeah, I mean, so we've had quite interesting movements with the stock market recently. So since middle of February until about the 8th of March, the um, the US tech heavy Nasdaq index had fallen by 10%. But you know, the, on the 9th of March, it, it rebounded by about 4%. So um, again, t- investors' patience is definitely being tested at the moment. Um, you've had s- stocks like Tesla fell 30% in about a month. And, you know, and then, uh, then we saw a single day movement of nearly 20%. I mean, this is, is, you know, it gets people's head scratching, gives them other people headaches. Um, but actually for the FTSE 100 representing the UK stock market, Market. It's actually held up quite well during that period because there's lots of oil companies in there. So oil is uh, price has been doing quite well. People um, expecting it demand to go up for in linking to the economic rebound. Um, we've also had the oil producers cartel OPEC deciding not to boost supply just yet. 
And also the FTSE 100 is propped up by banks as well. So there's a big expectation for interest rates to go up at some point. Um, and we've also have rising inflation expectations. And so there's an assumption that banks' net interest margins can prove. I mean, we try not to use too much jargon on here, but to translate that, it's the difference between the money that they earn from interest on loans and the money that they pay out as interest on savings deposits. So an increase in this uh, margin figure uh, theoretically should be good for their earnings. And it's been a really busy week this week for results. And I know you've picked out three to talk about. Uh, let's start with Domino's because uh, in my house, we've been eating a lot of pizza. Seems we're not alone. No, I, and I certainly, do, I mean, did you have one on New Year's Eve is the big question. So No, no, we, we didn't <laughs> do it for New Year's Eve. We did do a Zoom game of um, Cluedo with a whole load of friends and, and lots of uh, bites to eat but no no pizza yeah well if you look at domino's results it certainly seems like the new year period was absolutely amazing for its sales and so it came out with this statement saying that we've had a fantastic recent trading uh the shares shot up by 12 percent, and it was also spurred by a new plan to buy back lots of shares in the market and open another 200 stores. And I think this is quite brave considering it's still having a very big um, ongoing argument with its franchisees over various sort of commercial terms. And so uh, one would have thought it's not quite appropriate for the company to um, sort of bang on the table about these big, bold plans when it's got a, a real big problem with um, ultimately the people that are helping to to drive sales being the franchisees. So um, the other thing to really think about with, with Domino's is obviously there's growing competition from the likes of Just Eat and Deliveroo. You know, if you want, if you want sitting at home and you want a takeaway, we always used to think about let's just call out for a pizza. But these days you can just have an app and you can you know, get a choice of pretty much any meal you want, really. Um, so other big stories that we've seen in the last week are ITV, where the results weren't quite greeted with too much excitement by the market. Um, now, this is despite the company predicting a big increase in advertising spend in the coming months. Um, if you think about the shops are reopening, people are starting to think, can we actually go on holiday? Well, there'll be lots of big brands and holiday companies wanting to spend money to get their name in front of you when you're watching the telly. So, um, you know, th that's a, that's potentially a positive thing for the business to, to look forward to. Um, but actually, the day after the results came out, the shares slumped by 5% um, after ITV parted ways with Piers Morgan over comments made about Meghan Markle. And um, I guess investors might be worrying about the potential loss of ratings for the Good Morning Britain show. I bet they had a lot of eyeballs this week, though, Dan, on the uh, the Meghan Markle and uh, Prince Harry interview. There was so much interest generated by that. Yeah, I mean, ITV needed a big sort of um, show. Uh, you almost like call it the water cooler moment, but I can't, yeah. I can't really say that because we're not in the office. <laughs> but, um, but yes, it, it needed that big show. And to get people to almost to remind the, the appeal of actually sitting down watching live TV, because I don't think many people do that these days. But, um, you know, it, poor old ITV, you know, one day, good news. The next day, not so good news. So um, and, and just finally, I thought we'd have a quick look at Foxton. So with this big um, shift in how we work um, last year, everyone was saying, OK, if we're going to work from home more, let's think about moving house. We don't need to live near a city anymore. I don't want to commute. I'd, I'd rather live by the seaside or, or perhaps in the countryside. So um, 
poor old Foxen's being a sort of a London-centric estate agent, people thought, oh dear, everyone's going to be sort of flocking from the capital going somewhere else. But his results weren't that bad in the relative scheme of things. Certainly lots of activity in the lettings market. I think we've had many people leave their sort of rental properties, perhaps to go back to their parents if they're uh, a bit younger or, or rethinking their plans and say, so what this happened is um, it's pushed down the price of, of renting a property in London. So what Foxton's has, has lost out by getting a smaller cut on each rental property, it, it sort of arranges to be um, to be let. Actually, people are suddenly now being tempted by these much lower prices and it's seeing a much greater volume of transactions going on. Now, you started with pizza. I'm going to raise you a Wagamama's, if that's all right, because we've been talking a lot about food today. It is really worth mentioning this one, sort of round this bit up. Um, a big ask from the restaurant group today. Yeah, obviously, it owns Wagamama's, as I was saying, Frankie and Benny's as well. And they're looking to raise £175 million from its shareholders. Now, this is to pay down debt and also to use as a buffer in case of any COVID resurgence, they're saying. Now, um, we were crunching the numbers this morning, and it's the sixth biggest secondary raising of the year so far in the UK. Now, when you look at what they're promising, they're saying that they're well positioned to deliver long term shareholder value. But, you know, shareholders will have been looking at their shares over the last year and head in hands, I think, because plummeted last March, unsurprisingly, and really only stepped out of the doldrums following the announcement over this roadmap to reopening. And it rarely hit more than 70 pence a share up till January. Now it's just over 110 pence a share today. And, you know, the whole of last year was pretty debilitating for much of the hospitality sector. Reopening now is just weeks away, Dan. And what we've seen is they've changed the rental payment structure on half of the leasehold sites. So they're now operating on a turnover structure. And I guess the big question that the restaurant group and all of those hospitality uh, businesses are going to be asking is, are consumers going to be coming back in their droves? I know. I mean, they, they've been kind of lucky enough to be have a brand like Wagamama that still had appeal during lockdown and people have been able to do it for takeaway. But we haven't been getting takeaway from some of its other brands like Garfunkel's and, and Frankie and Benny's. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is a real testing moment. But they, all they can sort of just hope is that people have been so bored of being at home that they do want to go out for a meal. And then they remember, actually, I really enjoy this. I want to do it again with some more friends and then we'll do it with family and stuff. But, you know, anyone that's been invested in in the restaurant group as a business will have had their patients tested for years because it's been drowning yeah. in debt. Um, you know, and it's just been one, one minute is saying, yeah, we're on the recovery path. Then it's a big setback. And we've had so many of these that um, I think, you know, the, the management are, are very well versed with trying to, uh, you know, navigate through difficult times, and um, one would hope that now that they got to get this extra cash, they haven't got sort of the big financial worries for a while, and now it will just turn to let's have some effective marketing and get people back through the doors again. Yeah, I, I mean, I know certainly I was talking to my girls going back to school this week, and we were just talking about normality and normality would include being able to go out for a meal and the one of the things that the restaurant group is going to have to contend with of course is that they don't have many sites where they have that outdoor seating which is going to be huge in that first month 
yeah i mean they've got some fancy pubs which might be okay but um but yeah otherwise you know like many businesses it, the reopening is not going to be a, a flick of the switch on day one it's going to be a slow process before um you know certain all the restrictions are lifted and, and they can sort of start to function normally but um yeah a tough one you know particularly for anyone in the sector but you know all eyes are on you know, what could it do over the next six months and beyond um, rather than will it still be alive during the pandemic is all about looking to the future really so while we're talking about the future um, I want you to talk about uh, children and finance because uh, as I was saying my girls have gone back to school this week all children in England have gone back to school and we might not have to think about lessons at home anymore but it doesn't mean that we don't have to be thinking about our children's education there's been a big call for schools to do more to teach children about personal finance now this is a report from the Money Charity. It's spoken to 215,000 young people since 2010, helping them get to grips with financial education. And they've said that these money workshops that they're doing, just one hour of those really helps boost children's knowledge of things like credit card and debt and pensions. Uh, and I was having a, a troll around looking at what young people thought of financial education. And uh, there was a, a survey which was done last month by the money-saving app Student Beans, which um, put out their annual young person's money index, surveyed 3,000 students. And of those, only one in 10 of them said that they'd had lessons covering personal finance over the last year. And there was clearly a demand for it, although you know, you've got to take these surveys with a pinch of salt sometimes, particularly when it comes to young people about what they want to learn. But 89% said that they did want more information. They wanted to understand how to invest, how to budget, what an interest rate was, how to take out a loan, how to save for something like a mortgage. And of course, just really complex things like credit scores and taxes and how to avoid fraud those are all really important in today's world, particularly when we're buying so much online and particularly when, you know, you go to these websites now and you're often offered credit with companies like Klarna and you're wondering, what does that mean then? Yeah, I mean, definitely. This is, um, you know, so many people have been banging the drum about this, that we need better financial education schools. And um, given how the subject matter is so important to, you know, throughout the rest of our lives, this is not simply, um, you know, getting someone ready for um, when they turn to become an adult. This is, this is, this is huge. I don't, I still don't understand why there isn't a better um, scheme at schools to to teach these skills. But, you know, I, I was looking to see that the sort of, the progress that is being made where they are doing, you know, even if it's just one hour a week or something that um, it is being effective. That's great. And I'm also really pleased to see that it's using games, role play, discussions and debates. So it's, it's not people simply sitting in a classroom looking at a formula on a, um, you know, a whiteboard and um, you know, how to do a calculation. It's, it, it's actually being engaged. And hopefully that style of learning will stay stuck in people's minds and it really will help them when they become uh, a bit older and they've got to manage their own money. Yeah, because managing your own money, it, it's so important. And if you don't understand those terms, sometimes you, you might just, you know, pop your money in a bank and leave it there. But there are so many options and so many pitfalls. 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, talking about personal finances here at AJ Bell, we've been crunching some numbers. And if you've got a cash ISA, you might actually be losing money if you don't switch products. Yeah, we we talk a lot about switching. And I know there's been a lot around over the last couple of weeks about making sure that you switch energy suppliers to get the best deal. And I had my letter through the other day telling me that I was going on to a standard tariff. So uh, note to self must do something about that. But Consumer research, which um, has been carried out for AJ Bell by Opinion, and what it shows is that cash ISA savers are holding high levels of cash, and they're not switching accounts. They're not looking around for better rates. Now, some of it is down to the fact that rates have been so terrible that maybe they think there's no point switching around, but some of it is because maybe they haven't checked for a couple of years. Maybe they think that they've got more interest that they actually have. And it, it seemed that the typical cash ISA saver looked at their interest rate two and a half years ago. So some of them were thinking that they were getting about 1% or more. But of course, the average rate is just 0.4%. And you've got to remember as well that providers can change that rate at really different times. So it might be worth, if you are looking at saving for longer term, maybe not just five years, perhaps switching to a stocks and shares ISA, not just a cash ISA, because that market is likely to yield significantly better results. But you know, just shifting your ISA to a different rate, you could be making an extra £150 a year. If you've got £50,000 and you're only picking up 0.1%, just moving to 0.4%, you know, it's not a king's ransom, but anything extra at the moment has got to be helpful. So it is worthwhile just taking a look at your finances, having a bit of a spring clean, figuring out what you've got and figuring out what your returns are. Yeah, I mean, we're going to be looking at the whole concept of ISIS in two weeks time on the podcast. So what we want to do is hear the, all the questions you've got about understanding how they work um, or anything else you think of, anything ISA at all, please do drop us um, your comments via podcast at ajbell.co.uk and we'll do our best to answer as many as possible in this um, special edition of the podcast in two weeks time so it's time now for the first of our two guests this week and first up we've got Rosanna Bacheri who is one of the investment managers on the Artemis Global Select Fund so she has quite a big focus on thematic investing within that there's a um, exposure to tech stocks so She's going to be one of the investors around the world who will have been caught up in this sort of big market pullback that we've seen since mid-February. So this is all linked to expectations in the world economy. It's going to recover strongly. And that's triggered rising bond yields and people are worried about rising inflation. So Rosanna, what's your view on the recent market movements? Above all, with the news of the vaccination, we know that finally we are going to get into, into a recovery. And if you think about... Uh, probably the GDP growth rate that we're going to see uh, in 2021, maybe in the second half of 21, are going to be exceptionally. So there is a, a good uh, uh, fundamental for uh, uh, bond yield to rise and uh, inflation expectation uh, uh, to rise, even though right now we haven't seen really tangible uh, structural inflation, uh, uh, inflation trend. And uh, if bond bond yield rise, uh, yes, long duration assets are going to be under uh, under 
a possibility of uh, of uh, of profit taking and rightly so you know from time to time so you have this uh, this period of adjustment in uh, in uh, in the stock market now one thing is um is that uh, you know we all i always looked at uh, at evaluation at the end uh, i'm i'm a stock picker uh, and we do stock picking through a thematic lens so we are always interested in the valuation of company versus uh, the intrinsic value and the capacity of generating uh, free cash flow so if you step back it is sort of sometimes a dangerous just to assume that because a company is growing fast and the stock price is going up quite a lot that the stock is is expensive if really the cash flow is coming through and i always point uh, if you start comparing at the sort of uh, let's call it a flagship uh, um a ratio like uh, price earnings, you know, an Amazon with a price earnings of uh, 75, 76 times, but with a top line growing at, 30, at 23, 20, 25% and a free cash flow growing at 40%. And then you compare to an automotive supplier, Pirelli, is trading at 114 times. So it's not because Amazon has gone up so much that you can, you know, you can sort of assert that is uh, that is expensive. So for, for for me, it's important. It's important to understand always the business model of uh, of the company. If the company have a regular payment, regular uh, because of uh, the customer are uh, are uh, are really in a certain way inside their uh, their ecosystem, and this company require modest capex to keep uh, to keep uh, servicing their customer. Uh, and they need uh, not a lot of employee and little plant and equipment to, to operate. At the end, uh, I have a very attractive cash flow that is back to uh, to me as an equity holder. So, you know, every time uh, in the market, uh, yes, there, there there are period of adjustment. Uh, but as a, as an investor, you know, I always try to to step back and and look uh, first at the valuation, and second, is there a a good reason for the free cash flow of this company to keep on growing, and sometimes you need to hold your nerves during this uh, this adjustment of uh, of uh, of the market. I noticed that quite a lot of your investments are in Japan, whose stock market has also been caught up in the recent sell-off. What do you really like about companies in Japan? Um, few reason. Um, Japan is a, is. A, I think because of uh, the long, long bear market that there's been there, there is actually a region that is 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 a region that is not very well understood. And in a certain way, also in uh, in the city in London, we have lost a little bit of the the knowledge of what's going on in uh, in China. So it's a sort of really overlook. And sometimes um, people that uh, <laughs> look at stock, they not even consider the Japanese com- competitor. In reality, in in Japan, you have company, you have fantastic company that are most of the time leaders in really a, a very niche market share, and above all, trading at super attractive valuation. Most of the time, uh, highly asset back, and with this peculiarity that uh, um, there is really the potential for a better operating leverage and better uh, improvement in terms of margin. So for us, has always been. Uh, uh, an area really, really attractive where we found a leader across the world at a very attractive valuation. And right now, because we have this uh, prominent automation theme, well, a lot of the best automation company in the world are really based in Japan. Yeah, so I, I know that you, you, you like themes and 
Um, you like trends like automation and online services. But I, I was just wondering, these structural trends are so well known in the market that there's going to be um, lots of growth in this area. Surely all the best money has been made in these stocks. And isn't it time now to be looking one step ahead and, and seeing where else there are opportunities to be found? Yes and no, in the sense that um, uh, these two themes, you know, we, we, we were already presented in our, in our strategy well before COVID. COVID has accelerated a lot of, uh, a lot of the trend. Um, but if you, if you step back, uh, and, you know, that's something that we, uh, I always try to, uh, to do and look really if there are long-term trends and not just short-term uh, short-term opportunity. Uh, the seeds for the growth in these two themes are, are, are still there. So, for example, look at, if we think at automation, I think a lot of people sort of, sort of have in mind the automotive industry and how the factory automation is already uh, very well entrenched. And that's, and that's true because most of the um, area in, 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 in factory automation in, in automotive has already reached uh, quite an, an incredible area. But if you look at other industry, we are really, really at the beginning. You know, even in uh, in industrial logistics, it's only ten percent of the assets have uh, automatic automatization inside the uh, inside the um, inside the shed. So the potential for for growth is is still there. And the point has always been uh, really look uh, look across the world and see where where we are in this uh, long-term adoption of uh, factory automation. And factory automation is a lot of things, is a software, is um, um, you know optical sensor, is a robot, is 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 a, is a pneumatics. And I always give the example of uh, of Japan because um, in um, the I think it was the beginning of 2015 the Ministry of Economy and um, and trade announced this uh, uh, amazing five uh, five year action plan uh, on robotics um, and and Japan given the their demographic that they ought to be sort of uh, have a plan to sort of sort out the situation and they were targeting 25 percent of robotization in manufacturing. So in theory, you know, 2015, 2020, they, they should be almost there. But if you think about back at the number that I was giving you p- before, 25% of uh, robotization in manufacturing, compare where we are in automation, in uh, in automotive, you know, we are just uh, really at uh, at the beginning. And that's uh, Japan that uh, in a certain way is probably the most advanced uh, country in the world in terms of, you know, with uh, Korea and Taiwan in terms of uh, uh, robotization. In Europe and in America, we are still, still very, uh, very behind that. And in, in the same, in the same things is for uh, you know, in a certain way, on, online services. Um, again, uh, yes, the trend has been accelerated by by COVID, but everything, uh, the the adoption of uh, um, mobile communication, uh, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, artificial intelligence. If you think about the the great growth that we are seeing right now in 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 the need of of chips and the growth that we are seeing in semiconductor is really the indication that uh, there is going to be a, a very long long adoption of uh, of this. It's going to be part of our of our life. And I always take uh, 
you know, the big signal that has been given by TCMC. You know, they have committed $28 billion, $25 billion of CapEx to build a new foundry. I mean, these are big, big, really plant. And this kind of company, they will not commit CapEx with this size if they really don't think that the adoption is going to increase and really the growth is uh, is still ahead of us. But, you know, these two areas, we, okay. we really like, like them. They are still growth, but it, you always can find also other pocket and other, other theme of growth in, uh, in the world. Okay, brilliant. Rosanna, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Fascinating stuff from Rosanna. Um, it's going to be really interesting to see what happens over the next year. Um, our second guest this week is William DeGale, who runs the Blue Box Technology Fund. Now, like Rosanna, his patience will have been tested by some of the wild share price movements in recent weeks. Yeah, that's right. But, you know, the, the Blue Box Fund is actually held up relatively well thanks to exposure to semiconductor companies now, they've been getting a boost from higher selling prices because demand is currently outweighing supply but so William I thought it'd be good to start by asking if all the easy money has now been made in tech stocks no definitely not and the easy money people always say after the event and at the time it's probably the harder money so the average technology stock has been going up by 15 percent a year pretty consistently since 2009, which seems a huge amount, but actually that's almost precisely in line with the growth of technology's earnings over that period. So the average technology company has not become more expensive because its valuation has gone up, it's become more expensive because it's a bigger, more profitable company than it was 12 years ago. And that is likely for a very much uh, longer time. And that growth has come at the expense of the whole of the rest of the market. So if you look at the earnings of all other companies, they have pretty much been flat over that period. And that's why technology has performed so much. So tech hasn't become overall more expensive. It's just outgrown everything else. What, do you think investors make very similar mistakes when they're picking tech stocks, such as people believing that they could just pick anything tech related and it will do well uh, without sort of paying a bit more attention to what each company does and, and its valuation as well. The, what you need to differentiate is between the disruptors and the enablers. Now the disruptors are the companies that are using technology to disrupt their industry and they are typically the ones that you come across. So that's the um, Teslas and Ubers and so on, uh, Amazons of, of their industry. And they look interesting, they're growing very fast and they're making life very difficult for everyone else. That doesn't make them good investors um, because disruptors don't make money they spend money that's just their nature the companies that make the money are the enablers and the enablers are the businesses that support those disruptors that make that disruption possible and as enablers if they're good at what they do and no one else can do it and it's valuable then they make a lot of money and even better than that disruptors disrupt once and then they get disrupted in their turn uh, so you've got to own that sort of company for exactly the right sort of two, three years of its history before it then goes down for the rest of time. Whereas an enabler tends to enable disruption after disruption after disruption in lots of different end markets. So they can be very productive investments for a prolonged period of time. So I think that's the, the biggest mistake that technology make, investors make. The second one is that um, tech investors don't seem nowadays to feel the need for companies ever to actually make a profit or create any value for their investors. Uh, actual, in terms of the, 
the profits or free cash flows that belong to those outside investors who are our clients in the end. Um, and, and that's a huge mistake because it, it's, it's really a misunderstanding of what technology investment is about. People think that technology investment is about investing in technology, but it's, it's not. It's about investing in technology companies. And a company has to create value for its outside investors, outside shareholders, us, our clients, um, at some point in its history, or it's worth absolutely nothing. It will never be worth anything. Uh, and you might be able to sell it to someone for more than you bought it for, but that's just a matter of luck and very difficult to do it consistently over a long time. In the end, to be worth something, a company has to make a profit one day, and preferably quite soon. Because in tech, if it isn't making a profit now, or you can't see how it's going to make a good profit, positive free cash flow in the next two years, anything beyond that is a work of fiction. Because no one knows what tech is going to look like in three years' time. So if you're buying a tech stock that's growing very fast now, but is making a big loss, but you're being told, oh, but it'll be extremely profitable once all the competition has been eliminated. Really, you shouldn't get anywhere near it because that company is worth nothing. You can never eliminate the competition. You might, if you're lucky, eliminate individual companies, but someone else will always pop up. And these companies are growing very fast because there are very few barriers to entry in what they're doing. So someone else can come along with some slightly better way of doing what they're doing, and suddenly they're yesterday's story and they're toast. Can you give me an example of a company that would fall under the enabler category? I can talk about a company called EPAM. So EPAM is a Ukrainian software services company. That sounds a bit frightening, but actually it's a very well-run business. It's a global company now listed in the US, very well established. It writes software for other companies that can't do it in-house, which is almost anyone. 40% of its business is other tech companies. And what it's really doing is, is connecting traditional products and services to the real world. So it's taking a digital... Uh, it, it, it's, it's basically taking a traditional analog product, whether it's, you know, um, an oil refinery or um, a shipping service, and it's connecting it in some way and, and therefore adding capabilities to that product and market to that product. And it does this again and again and again for lots of different businesses. So an example of things they've done, they created one of the online shipping notification systems. So if you're getting a a message today from, let's say, UPS, you'll get a text message saying, so-and-so will deliver your parcel at a certain time. And that means you stay in for that little bit longer and the guy delivering it doesn't have to come back tomorrow, so that's good. Uh, they developed the, the, um, a new operating system for uh, the central element of an oil refinery, so you don't have to shut the oil refinery down to, to upgrade it. Um, they work with Fortnite, uh, with, sorry, with Epic Games to, to put Fortnite um, onto the cloud so that um, you can have 350 million different people playing it. Uh, and they've been working, doing that for four years now. Um, so they've been working with UBS uh, um, to create a new wealth management system. Um, and so the, the disruptors potentially are the customers. So it might be UPS with this new notification system. It might be the oil refinery because it has a time advantage. It doesn't have to shut down to upgrade. It might be UBS because it's more efficient the way that its people can operate. Um, it, it, the Fortnite is, you know, one of the world's most successful games. Can I or would I want to invest in any of them? Well, I wouldn't want to buy a shipping service because it's pretty dull. It's not really going to go anywhere. I don't want to own an oil refinery because we probably passed the best for oil in our lifetime. Um, I don't want to buy a Swiss bank because they're dreadful businesses. And I can't buy Epic Games anyway because it's a private company. But I can buy EPAM. And EPAM has basically done the vital work to bring all those products out to the world, along with lots and lots of other businesses. Uh, and so it's been a most spectacular performance. So, you know, I bought this in the IPO back in 2012 at $12. It's now worth a bit more than $375. So that's 31 times upside. It, until a year ago, it was better performing than Tesla. 
but no one will ever talk to you about EPAM because it's fundamentally quite a boring business from an investor's point of view. Whereas Tesla, it's very exciting. You know, you can see the cars out there, you can buy the cars, they're fun. They might not last very long, but they're fantastic to look at and they've got amazing battery power. Um, but that doesn't mean to say Tesla's a good investment because it's not really designed to make money. It probably will go on making a little bit of money for a while, but it's never going to be hugely profitable. It's about selling boxes on wheels, ultimately. EPAM is phenomenally profitable. Um, and it does the same thing again and again. Whereas Tesla, you know, I've got an electric car. It's not a Tesla. I love it. You know, other people can do electric cars too. Sorry, a rather long answer. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I know lots of people who do look at the tech space. Um, my husband concerns about um, perhaps fewer people using Facebook and it knows too much about its users um, or that it's regulators who are wanting to break up names like Google and Amazon. But, um, you know, th there's some clear risks around the tech space. But what, what surprises me is that share prices in these sort of companies haven't really priced in massive risks. I, I just wonder, do you think the market is right to ignore these things or are investors actually going to get a nasty stock quite soon? So I, so I think what you've got to do is differentiate between the mega caps, the companies you're talking about, there's basically 12 very, very big tech related businesses. And none of those companies you just mentioned are actually tech companies. Those are all consumer discretionary stocks. Um, but differentiate between them and the rest of the tech sector, where you have lots of large cap and mid cap and small cap companies, which are doing their own thing very consistently year after year after year. The mega caps are in a class of their own because they're very obvious. Most of them are not tech companies anymore. They're consumer or, or um, communication stocks classified now as and people tend to hide in them in a crisis. So if you, if you compare the mega caps performance with the rest of the tech sector, when you go into a crisis like the financial crisis in 2008 or the Euro crisis in 2012 or COVID crisis in 2020, people hide in the very biggest companies. Because you might think Apple is the most boring company in the world, but you know it's still going to be there on your time. So if in February, March of 2020, you're suddenly worried about companies going out of business due to an economic collapse, you take your money out of the more interesting mid-sized and large cap companies and you stick it into Apple because you know for certainty Apple will be there next year. Um, but then as you begin to um, stop worrying about the environment being quite that dangerous and you realize actually tech companies are all doing pretty well out of COVID, which almost all of them are, then the money starts coming back out of the make caps and into the rest of the sector. Um, and that happened on about the 1st of September. It's pretty clear on a chart that that was the key date where people stopped worrying about companies going out of business. Up until then, the mega caps have outperformed, not because investors are ignoring the regulatory risks, which I think we're all pretty aware of and which are getting greater and greater, but because that's not going to kill the company in the next 12 months. So Facebook, it's definitely still going to be there in 12 months, months time. Then I can worry about the regulatory issue. Once I've got somewhere else, I can put the money without having to worry about that slightly smaller company going bankrupt because of the economic environment. Now, since 1st September, those US mega caps, so um, for me, a mega cap's a company with a, a market cap of more than 1% of the S&P 500. So this is a $300 billion market cap or more. These are absolutely enormous businesses. There are, there are only two US tech-related mega caps which are actually up on the beginning of September. One of them is Tesla, which is in a little universe of its own, and to me a bit of a fantasy world. And the other one is Google, which has just crept up above that line, but it was a pretty poor performer during the crisis. All the others are flat or down on the first September. And that's because it's now the turn of everything else to start moving forward. And this is exactly what happens as you come out of a crisis. And you can see it happen again and again and again. So the mega caps get left behind now and they've got regulatory issues as well, which makes it even worse. 
Um, so even if you ignore the regulatory issues, I'd be completely steering clear of the very biggest tech companies at the moment because they're not the place to be at this time in the cycle. And the regulatory issue for some of them, the fangs in particular, make life a lot harder. So I'm happy only some Microsoft because it hasn't really got any regulatory issues and it got those out of the way 20 years ago. But I wouldn't go anywhere near Facebook um, because it has some real problems um, coming up. Well, William, thank you ever so much for joining us on the podcast. It's really fascinating to hear your thoughts on the tech space. No problem at all. Absolute pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Well, that is about all that we have this week. Just a chance to flag up what is on next week's show and tell everyone what you're keeping an eye on, Dan. Yeah, well, we've got Helen Mayhew from the Renewable Infrastructure Group coming on the show to talk about green investing. And I'll also be asking Suk Chamdal from Cakebox about the nation's appetite for franchising and just how many cakes he's been selling through lockdown as we've been seeking our sweet treats. Mm-hmm. Uh, I will also have a look at the IPO market and how people have been racing to own shares in certain companies as soon as they join the stock market. I'm hoping there will be cake next week, Dan. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Until then, you can email any comments or any questions to us via podcast at ajbell.co.uk. Thanks for listening. Thank you. Before you go, please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of AJ Bell or Shares Magazine. The podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not. And don't forget that the value of investments can change and you can lose money as well as make it. It's also important to remember that tax rules apply and that the way an investment performed in the past may not be the same as how it behaves in the future. If you want help, go see a qualified financial advisor.